This is Hashtag Authentic, a podcast for creatives, dreamers and entrepreneurs online. I'm your host, Sarah Tasker, a certified coach specializing in creative business and all things related to social media and the digital realm. This is episode number 104. Hello, my lovely friends. How are you all doing? I'm sorry this episode is a little bit later than scheduled. We've had um, decorators in the house and every time I tried to sit down to record just the intro for this podcast, they would like crank up Radio 2 or start drilling or hammering. So I've been waiting for a day when peace has been restored so I can sit in front of the microphone and talk to you properly. I have another amazing conversation with you today. I know I always say that, but I get such a lot out of these calls that I get to make with these incredible people and I always feel so excited to share them with you when I myself have taken something away that has stuck with me and resonated with me and maybe just kind of helped me shift my thoughts in a more positive direction and today's call is definitely one of those. So let me tell you about today's guest Rebecca. Rebecca Schiller is many, many things. She's a journalist. She's an author. She's a doula. She's a smallholder. She is a goat midwife, as you will hear in our conversation. She's also a very active campaigner for women's rights. And she is a mother. And I'm sure there is probably a great many other things we can add to that list. She sent me her book, Earthed, um, a few months ago now, before it was published. And it's been a long time since something has resonated quite so deeply with me. It's one of those books where I grabbed a pencil and was underlining whole passages because I felt like I was seeing myself on the pages. So it was really a delight to have this conversation with her and I hope you hear and see yourself somewhere in here too. So without further ado, here is Rebecca. Hi Rebecca, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, let's start. Could you give us the good old introduction to who you are and what you do? Of course. Well, um, I've done lots of different things, but most of the time now I'm um, a writer. I write books and do a bit of journalism and um, help other writers, particularly writers who happen to be mothers, um, through sort of retreats and coaching. But I have a background um as a campaigner, particularly focusing on pregnancy and birth and, and women's rights. So um, I've done quite a bit of, of charity work and also um, supported uh, pregnant uh, people as a doula. Um, so yeah, meandered about, but it's all sort of coalescing here in being a writer and, and also a, a small holder um, because I didn't have enough to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, in fact, just before I hit record, we were saying you're kind of acting as a doula today because one of your animals is potentially in labour? Yes um this is actually the the second time we've tried we've tried to <laughs> chat and three weeks ago I forgot entirely because I'd been awake for um 
about a week um, with one of our um, goats. It's our first time. We've had goats for a couple of years, but it's our first time um, breeding. Um, and so, yeah, we I'd been up uh, looking after her and I have been <laughs> saying for about a week, I know when our other goat is going to go into labour. <laughs> it will be the exact time that I'm going to talk to Sarah again. About a minute before you called, she came into the shed, lay down and is currently lying on the floor, uh, writhing about a little bit. So I've got a little baby monitor and um I've already said I might have to might have to suddenly leg it if uh, if I see if I see some hooves emerging. <laughs> we understand. No one wants to be on their own for that experience. No. <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of first discovered your work kind of in a backwards way with your latest book, Earthed. Is it out right now? It's out on the sixth of May. Um so yeah, we're just in that pre-publication bit where we're um, doing lots of publicity stuff and getting the book out to some early readers for reviews, which is exciting and a bit terrifying. And am I right in saying when you first started writing that book, it was pre-lockdown and you hadn't quite realised the journey it was going to take you on? <laughs> yeah, it was um, It was a really, you know, it came out of a, a sort of very casual comment um with a, a friend we were talking about my new love for small holding and gardens and my previous work you know around childbirth and women's rights we made a joke that I should write a book called Lady Garden <laughs> that would be an amazing title and actually that was the title that we sent this idea out on submission um which in retrospect was probably that. a really bad idea um but yeah it was it was supposed to be about sort of 12 months here on the small holding um following the, the sort of journey and, and helping as I sort of recovered from a bout of anxiety and depression. Um, and actually, by the time the book had I'd sort of formulated that, had gone out and a publisher had, had bought it and I started writing it, it was a very, very different year. And it ended up um, covering uh, a breakdown um, and um, going into the pandemic year and, um, and and a sort of big diagnosis. So, yeah, it, it became a very different book from the one that it started off as, as I think a lot of a lot of books do. I think it's quite remarkable as well that you managed to get it written with all of that going on. Um, how? How? <laughs> how did you do well, that? Well, <laughs> it, 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 I, I struggle with a lot of things, but if there's something I'm really interested in and I really want <laughs> to do, um, I'm going to do it. So um, it, it was very... Um, it was difficult to get started. Um, I was I started writing it in January 2020, um, and uh, obviously the pandemic came in. Um, I was um, diagnosed. I started some medication, and that was all happening over a period of months. My children were at home, um, but. I loved writing it. It was really, really difficult emotionally and really difficult in terms of time. Um, but because I loved writing it so much, I just did it. And I had a really supportive editor as well. And in the end, having got loads and loads of words down on paper, of course, the last six weeks, I just didn't do anything else at all. Yeah. But I just did, lived in it for 18 hours a day, um, and um, which is far too much and nearly, nearly broke me. But it, it, it I hope, made the book um into something that I, I'm, I'm pretty proud of it is so beautifully written as well like I I haven't, haven't got my copy now in front of me but I know I'd underline some bits just because just the phraseology just your construction of sentences alone was just so exquisite um before you even delve into like how rich the subject matter is and how 
vulnerable and honest you've been in those pages. Um, is that a hard thing to do? Have you written autobiographically before? No, I haven't. I mean, I've, I've, I have as a journalist, I suppose, you know, I've written about my own experiences, particularly through um, motherhood. Um, and I've written, it's not my first book. Um, I've written nonfiction before. Um, but something much more journalistic about human rights and birth around the world. And I wrote a, a, a pregnancy and, and, and birth guide as well. But those are very, <laughs> those are very different, um, different kinds of books. So it was, a. I I talked to lots of other, I, I run, I run some writing retreats. So I was really lucky to, um, before the pandemic came in to be spending time with other authors who'd written memoir. And so got the chance to talk a lot about how, <laughs> how to write about your life and really love reading other people's, um, get, get a lot from reading memoir. And so I just sort of set out with a desire to be really honest, if nothing else, like if it, even if it's rubbish, <laughs> even if it, no one else would like to read it, feel like if it's honest, then I'll be happy with it. Mm. Um, and it, I think when you get into that track, it's very hard to do it in any other way. Um, and so that's, that's something that people have, have said a lot uh, who've, who've read it so far that they sort of they can't quite believe how <laughs> brutally honest, <laughs> honest and exposing it is but it just didn't seem possible to write about life and a difficult period for me a difficult period for everybody without laying it on the table really there yeah. didn't seem to be a point in doing it any other way well yeah and that's where the connection is that's where mm -hmm. like the real power of those words is isn't it people being it able is. to see themselves in it and there's plenty of places we can go to see a filtered version of the world <laughs> and a, a slightly more aspirational version of what it might be like to go through some of these things but actually sometimes just seeing your own experience in someone else is healing in and of itself. Yeah I think so and particularly in in so much that the subject matter is about something that a lot of people would presume is idyllic and aspirational you yeah. know it's a bit about moving to the country, living the good life, a small holding. It's an incredibly beautiful book. The publishers have done a, a really good job. So it sort of sounds like you thought it was going to be an idyllic and aspirational book when you first pitched it. I, I think I think I I hoped it wouldn't be a sort of you feel sad, go outside and, you yeah. know, see a daffodil and everything's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but I did, I, I did, I did think it was a book about being on an upswing. Um, and, and it turned out that I was not on an upswing at all. I was, I was on a sort of, um, a, 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 a very strong downswing. And, um, and so, yeah, I think, I think being really, um, being really honest about the fact that dreams and, idols and things often <laughs> don't really exist but there's good stuff in there anyway um uh, because particularly after the the year we've you know we've been through um it it doesn't feel like um the right time to give up on dreams and aspirations but it also feels like a time to acknowledge all of the all of the difficult stuff as well yeah I imagine a lot of people this year have actually had for the first time or certainly the first time in a long time sort of the freedom to pursue some of those dreams and realizing that it's not as simple as like if we just had the time we'd make it happen because sometimes yeah. you can have the time and it's still not happening and you have to look <laughs> at why was there a point where 
you thought like, oh my gosh, I've I've been accepted to write this book. I've been give, presumably paid in advance and now I'm not going to be able to write the book I promised them. Or were you confident that you could write something that would still deliver? I think um, this is where I feel really grateful for it not having been my first book. Mm. And one of the things I've learned from working you're writing other books also talking to other authors is that for this kind of book you want to be working with a publisher and an editor who you trust implicitly and you've got an amazing relationship with and so I really wanted um the book to go to um Elliot and Thompson who are a sort of a a bigger independent publisher and with a real reputation for quality and 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 um and caring as well and a particular editor Sarah Rigby and she um she says she saw she she just sent out the the books um to uh you know a, a selection of people who the finished book to a selection of people who had sort of given endorsement quotes and in her letter she said that she she kind of saw saw something in <laughs> in the book that I hadn't seen myself and mm. so she I think just sort of gently pointed me in a couple of directions and um, allowed me to take loads and loads of risks. There's a lot of editors who would have said, you can't write a memoir and include loads of fiction and poetry and um, make it about the past and have a bit that's set in the future. That's a completely insane thing to do. Um, but she did not say that. She um sort of saw that that might be somewhere I went and 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 sowed some seeds so it was really collaborative and I think that's one of the reasons why I didn't um completely crack whilst doing it because yeah. she was holding me professionally as well as kind of emotionally through the through the process which I feel incredibly grateful for and it's really unusual <laughs> yeah well it sounds like she was sort of like your book doula she, you did all the work <laughs> but she helped <laughs> she, I mean she she did work it's been a real sort of um team effort and she worked incredibly she's been working incredibly hard but yeah she she it, it has been exactly like that have like having a book doula <laughs> really really wonderful you mentioned that to, sort of towards the end of the book you reveal that you received another unexpected diagnosis um are you happy for us to talk about that on the podcast yeah today? absolutely I think it makes sense too <laughs> yeah absolutely so um I'll let you tell the story what where did the first inkling that this diagnosis might be applicable to you come from well, this is something that I write about towards the end of end of the book that, you know, I'd had in in 2019, I'd, I'd really reached a crisis point and I was waiting for some help. My GP was trying to get me um, referred to a psychiatrist and mental health services kept batting me back. And I was sort of helping myself by using the research I was doing, learning about women from the past, learning um, about the plot itself, the history, and actually doing the physical work to, to, to soothe myself. And another thing that I do to soothe myself is go off on research tangents, just the way my <laughs> brain goes. Yep. And I one day was looking, flicking from here to there, from here to there. And I came, a friend had shared an article, which I clicked on not even looking at, at what it was and it was about um what it's like being a sort of high functioning woman with um ADHD and I started reading it um and then suddenly there was a paragraph about 
it was written first sort of first person by a woman who said you know her life was like this carnival ride the mind scrambler and she was just on this ride and it was swirling her round and round and everything was getting faster and faster and faster and I I've never read anything which described how <laughs> how I felt um so much and I I carried on reading and there was there was a doctor speaking who talked about having a uncontrollable hurricane-like energy that could be incredible but could also be incredibly damaging and these emotional upheavals and the more I read the more it sounded just like me um and um I of course then did um, an obsessive amount of research (laughs) in a very short space of time yeah yeah um and um but by the time I went to my GP with it he happily knew quite a lot about ADHD having listened to a podcast with Richard Bacon and also knew quite a lot about me because I had spent quite a lot of the summer crying in his <laughs> office um, and my husband ringing him so he he was really really helpful in um, trying to get me uh, a referral um, and and yeah and, and I was diagnosed eventually the the following February so sort of just as COVID was becoming a thing um, and um, uh, so yeah, by late February, I had my diagnosis, and then pretty much straight into into lockdown. Um, so it was a a really unsettling, um, but really important time to have that missing piece of information about what had been going on with me all along. Yeah. So time scale wise, I also got my diagnosis of ADHD <laughs> probably just a couple of months before you, and so was just getting my medication right as lockdown kicked in. Um, and for me, there was the added component of um, I have like a, a health condition and one of the one of the parts of that is a chronic fatigue. So the medication was keeping me awake for like the yeah. first time in my life, for ho- not my life, but the first time in a long time for like whole days. And the world was like opening up to me in all these amazing new ways. But also the world was like slamming shut because of lockdown. Um, yeah. So it's nice to speak to someone who was going through that similar kind of dichotomy right there absolutely I think that um you know you sort of there's a whole lot of possibility (laughs) and then a whole lot of impossibility (laughs) that collides (laughs) when when that those two things happen happen at once and also I suppose and I don't know whether you found this something going through something that big at a time when you can't really see anybody mm. and, and you, you can't tell people there's actually lo- loads and loads of people in my life who have no idea that that they're going to find out if they re- if they read the book <laughs> I've hardly talked about it because um I have hardly seen anybody um and that that feels you know there's so much has happened in that in that year or so but it also feels like a real sort of missing missing year I don't know if you've you've found anything similar yeah it's like a missing chapter that we've all kind of missed from each other's lives maybe we all need to write a book and just pass (laughs) it around to our friends yeah if 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 you're if you're all willing to do that to yourselves then um and what struck me what you were saying earlier is like how fortunate you were to have a GP that you could go to because I know a lot of people like the fear of not being taken seriously, the fear of kind of using up your last bit of credibility with your GP, especially as a woman and an adult presenting with something like ADHD, because it does look very different to what a lot of our preconceived notions of ADHD can be. Yes, I think so. I mean, I, I had 
I sort of lucked out seeing this particular GP at, at some point when when I was really feeling quite un, unwell and I'd known he was the GP for me because he I told him what what was happening and he said what do you want to happen next oh wow <laughs> um and you know to be treated as an adult with an opinion uh, and uh, and an also some control. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's everything that I know from the work that I've done you know um in women's health but being in that position um as a patient it's very different and I actually had some really horrible experiences trying to get referred into mental health services with psychiatric nurses um really really disappointing and upsetting quite mm. traumatic but having my GP in my corner has been a, a, a really something that's really saved um saved a really difficult situation for me and 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 actually got me you know to where I needed to be sort of diagnosis and medication wise um in a system that was not keen yeah. <laughs> to help at all yeah um, I, did, I don't know if you found found the same or if your your path was reasonably smooth, but most people I speak to have, have had to fight. So I went private for that exact reason. And I just, I just, I didn't have the self-belief. I could read the, read all of the articles and do all the research and convince myself, but I still had this thought of like, what if I'm just making excuses for my own laziness? That's like the narrative that I've lived with yes. in my life for so long. So... I needed another person to tell me and I didn't think I could fight for it. I, I wasn't in a place where I felt able to. So I thought I will pay. I'm very fortunate that my business allows me to be able to do that. And if I'm barking up the wrong tree, like all I've lost is a, a half a day yes. of my time and this money. Um, and so actually it was much smoother because of that. And now, like I get a lot of DMs from people who who are considering going for a diagnosis of maybe feeling like they're in a similar position and they will say, is it worth going private? And I'm always kind of hesitant because for me, it was really valuable. But I also sort of wonder if I hadn't been open to trying medication and I know a lot of people aren't keen to try because the medications are mainly stimulant based. Yes. Whether it would have been worth it in terms of outcomes. I mean, I, I, I mean, I ended up, actually, I, I was referred in, really, my GP and I, we'd been pursuing the local, the local uh, NHS psychiatry team for, for six months anyway, and they wouldn't see me. Mm. Um, so, and, and the waiting list is sort of a couple of years. So I did, I did end up um, going, going private, but because of my GP was at, my medication was referred straight back into the NHS, which was incredibly helpful because it was a real, it was a real stretch. Um, but I do think, I mean, I, I also think the more, the more of us that opt out of that system, the less pressure there is on it to change and, 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 and there needs to be some change. Um, and, you know, two years to even be seen and a, and a fight to be seen is, is just not, is just not okay. But for me, it was essential. Um, at that point it was a sort of, you know, there was no, there was no, um, there was no wiggle room. I had to, I had to, had to be seen. Same for me, like push yeah. comes to shove and it, there's a desperation, isn't there? Mm. That, that even leads you to kind of consider these outside possibilities in the first yeah. place. Absolutely. And when you look back, I wonder like, 
I can hear the contrast in how you describe like the two big chapters of your life, like this period of activism, this kind of outside world action. And then you almost retreating to the small holding to your writing, which is um, seems like, oh, no, it's obviously still very active, but seems almost like a, a, a retreat from the world. Like, do you think in a way you've kind of shaped your life as an attempt at self-medication for some of these things? Absolutely. I think um, one of the things I'm really interested in is somebody on, I think it was on Twitter, was saying, oh, everybody seems to be being diagnosed with ADHD Mm. at the moment, which really uh, I found quite triggering. But there are quite a lot of people writing about about ADHD. And I do think if you look at people who are, are drawn to freelance careers yeah. <laughs> you know in which they can control and shape um the, the 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 things they do so it interests them in which things are fast paced and things are moving on in which they're not subject to a whole load of sort of internal a company bureaucracy yes. and, uh, then it's not surprise and 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 and, and which is harnessing kind of creativity which of course goes hand in hand often with um you know having a neurodiversity so I, I think, you know, for, for me, I have consistently, I've moved, I've changed careers a lot. I've followed the things that interested me. I've um, been able to build on the kind of strengths that I have. And our whole life here, my husband's self-employed as well, is set up so that we are able to be flexible in our, in our time. And, and, and really, accidentally, I, you know, not accidentally, but subconsciously, I've been drawn to a life that feeds what I need. I think the trouble is that if you're not aware of why that is, then you also bring in unhelpful coping mechanisms and expectations. And one of the things I've realized, I've I've got a really um, great uh, um, clinical psychologist I've been working with for a while, helping me see that one of the things I do when I'm stressed to relax is to generate ideas. Um, <laughs> definitely how I relax, like have an idea and it could be interiors. It could be creating a, um, a brand new, um, you know, business. It could be writing a book, but that I also have an expectation that I will, I must do everything and I must do it very well. And I must do it very quickly. And that in combination with not having very good it turns out time management and um, being quite stressed and overwhelmed when things build up is is kind of disastrous. So just trying to work out how to relax by generating ideas without having to actually do all of the, all of the yeah. ideas is a really useful practical um, thing that I now am able to do because I know which bits of me might be being influenced by the ADHD and which bits are, are just um, ordinary uh, issues that I, that I have and which bits. Right. Yeah. Or rules, rules even that maybe you've learned from the neurotypical people around you in your life as kind of like the norm. And I don't know if that applies there, but I definitely see a lot of that come up in my life. Like a lot of the expectations I have of me are not based on any real world experience of being me, but they're based on what I see everybody else seeming to find easy. So the amount of times I've tried to reinvent myself as a neurotypical person and failed miserably. That's really interesting because one of the things I was thinking about when I was looking at your, um, obviously I have to research everything. So I was looking (laughs) looking at what you do and looking at your Instagram and thinking about how 
you have really, it looks from the outset as if you've really carved out a life and, and career that fits what you need. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think people would look at me and see the same thing. Yes. But one of the issues is that, and I have done that, and I, my husband and I have quite a lot of conversations about kind of rejecting things that are mainstream that don't work for us. We're both self-employed. We don't have to work from nine to five every day. And yet I feel like I'm being lazy if I'm not yes. sitting at my desk. Yeah. You know, we don't think that it's successful if we get to go on loads and loads of foreign holidays or have a fancy car. But I also still, there's something in which mm. like both versions of success are persuasive and they don't combine well. So I, I'm I'm letting everywhere, I'm letting various areas of my plot get really tangly and nettly and weedy deliberately for nature. You know, I don't want it to be too tidy because it's not good <laughs> for the insect. You know, yeah. I want to get home. But I tell you what, I go round and that the mess bothers me that people would see the mess and they would think I was a messy person and they wouldn't understand it. And I find in my life the collision of the neurotypical version that I should be playing and the kind of authentic version of me very 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 difficult um because they've obviously been battling it out for years um (laughs) well that's it and and I read somewhere I wish I could remember the exact number but I have no memory at all for numbers but an ADHD child by the age of 12 has heard something like 50,000 more negative things about themselves that number could be wrong but it is like a vast number because of all the tiny ways in which they don't conform without knowing it yes and I'm sure that's true for all sorts of different types of neurodiversity and that's why you see things like rejection sensitive dysphoria is like in 99% of people with ADHD because we have such a weak foundation of self-belief from that experience of being told you're not humaning right like I I described it to my therapist once as like I feel like everyone else was born with a manual for how to live and I didn't get the manual yes they didn't send it to me either (laughs) (laughs) or they sent it late like sort of sent it later on to be fair if they sent it we wouldn't have read it anyway but (laughs) (laughs) that's a very good point that is a very good point I'd have read the first page and the last page (laughs) and a bit in the middle Um, I carried it around the house with me for about three days meaning (laughs) I I think that is really uh, you know I was my my mum and dad have just sent me a big bundle of um they're doing a clear out a big bundle of paperwork and it's all of my school reports in there and I did really well at school oh I I I was lucky to have the kind of brain that could find a way to hyper focus on a lot of things if Mm. I had to the the sort of the the threat of not doing well was enough to make me um, to make me able to kind of concentrate. So I did well at school, but I found this report. We'd been asked to write our own reports when I was nine. And it's it's heartbreaking. I mean, it's really sweet, but it's heartbreaking because in every single category, I sort of say, you know, I think I'm good at this, but I rush too much and I need to work harder on my presentation. And if if I just try hard enough, mm. I think my writing could be brilliant. I must... I have been talking too much, but I'm going to try hard to be quieter. And it's just full of the ways in which I need to just try hard enough, then I will be better. 
rather than all and and I that's what I internalized and I I suppose the breakdown in in the book the breakdown I have had and I'm trying to come out of is that there's only so many levels and only so many fronts that you can try hard on before you completely break yourself and if you're so used to I don't know about you but I've been so used to living in a state of trying hard and being exhausted but I don't even notice it um I don't notice how hard I'm trying how hard I'm working until I'm at a point where it is an absolute emergency um, because it's just normal for me for everything to involve a huge amount of will and quite a lot of pain actually (laughs) yes and self-rejection yeah coming out of that is very difficult saying okay well maybe I would like to live in a way that isn't like that and how does that look like without feeling like a failure it is literally like retraining your brain in every minute way like I notice it even um like I'll be in the middle of a conversation with someone and I'll suddenly be like I've been holding like needing to go to the toilet for the last three hours and now I can't hold it any longer and but then I'm like it's weird I can't say that it's I can't I can't explain because most people don't have the sudden urge because they've been holding it for three hours so I'll just hold it a bit longer and then you'll sat there like squirming in discomfort and such a small thing I couldn't even like remember it by the end of the day but like so many incidents exactly like that they just stack up on top of each other all day long Yes, yes. And if you're doing that, loads of sort of micro levels and and some quite big, um, some big stuff too, then it does. And without without understanding why, I suppose as well that, you know, I guess you like me, it's very recent realising that there is a reason for it. Um, it's not just, uh, it's not just that I'm, I'm, weak or I'm not good enough mm. um it, it's there is a reason this is the way that my brain works and so n- trying that hard but not acknowledging it and not understanding why you feel that way I think is is something that I'd like to spare um the next couple of generations yeah. from, uh, you know uh, have that understanding that that women and women and girls present very differently with this um and and that maybe if more of them were diagnosed when they were um when they were younger um they would be able um to understand that they might not get to a point where they'd need medication not by mounting medication but you know i i think my life would have been quite different if i'd un- understood what was going on earlier um so uh, you know i um i i think there's some there's some work to do and that but then the campaigner in me can't you've got some ideas (laughs) yeah but absolutely I mean I often think on the fact that like we expect children at the age of like before they're four in mainstream education to be able to sit still on a carpet and listen to a story and the ones that can't we start to label as different and we say this is the framework you should be able to sit in a classroom for six hours a day and concentrate and if you can't something wrong with you and we need to find out what and yet if you look at mammals everywhere if you look at the history of humankind on a on a grand scale it's only a tiny fraction of time that we've been spending like in that period of focus concentration and we weren't built for it like it could just as easily have been people with ADHD who decided what school looked like and could have built it completely differently such an arbitrary set of rules and yet the fact that we even consider it a disability or we consider it like a neurodiversity is based on the fact that like 
someone who didn't have ADHD made the rule book? Absolutely. And I think even though I've come from a place where the reason I got that diagnosis was that everything had kind of gone wrong and, and it came from a place of crisis and things being difficult. One of the things that I feel like I have got out of going through that process of getting diagnosed whilst writing the book is doing a bit of research into ADHD. And one of the things that I loved finding out was this um, series of theories that have interrelated about what what ADHD is. Is it a disorder or is it in fact um, just a, a, a group of people who are genetically different mm. and the relationship between um, nomadic herds yes. people and ADHD, which I end up writing a bit about. I love but, this bit. <laughs> this is know, one of my underlined bits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that we we were the we were the leaders then because Sure, we, we we didn't read the whole instruction manual, but give me a vast, uh, you know, set of rolling hills and a huge herd, and I've got to find the next place for grass, and I've got to spot which one is pregnant and who's got a sore hoof, and which Keep one an eye the on the horizon in case of predators. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm I'm all over that. You want someone who can spot something that that's that's happening before it has happened. Yes. I am that person, and and actually. I love a lot of things that my brain allows me to do. It's why I could write a book like this with loads of different things in it, because I could see it. If I really tried really, really hard, I could see the whole thing. And I want everything to fit together. I look for patterns. I want to do things differently. And I'm sure you, in a different way, do exactly the Mm -hmm. same thing. And that I love being like that. It's really difficult at times, but I would definitely rather have that. So I kind of resent the idea that it's a disorder. It, it's, it's, you know, it has, you know, like a, a, a lot of things around, I guess, disability. It, it's, it's the world that is making things yeah. difficult in yes. lots of ways rather than the way that I am and that I think. And actually the world has got quite a lot out of the way that neurodiverse people think and behave um so um we just need to start being a little bit friendlier in return I think absolutely so we know that ADHD is like 50 50 hereditary I think is the latest statistic I've been reading so how do you approach that as a parent like are you kind of trying to leave space for whatever your children may become yes it it is I mean I think looking up the generations and down the generations is an inevitable part of being (laughs) diagnosed and you know other members of my family have subsequently been diagnosed not my not my children um and it's quite yeah it's quite hard not to look it's quite hard anyway I think whoever you are as a parent to look at your children be like oh you get that from me and you've got my you know terrible sense of balance and I suppose I've tried to be open with my children about what's going on with me and to see then if they find themselves feeling similarly. I'm trying not to pathologize yes. their behavior, but it's very difficult. Um, but actually, there are things in both of my children, nothing to do with ADHD, to do with how they see the world, that since going through this sort of real examination of myself, I feel like, oh, I understand why you're really upset about this or why this really bothers you because actually now that I understand myself a bit better 
I see that you might have got that bit from me, that bit that's very, very, very intense, <laughs> quite an <laughs> intense person. It's possible that one of my children is too. And I suddenly understand his intensity. And I, I think that's a sort of, um, that's a that's a real that's a really nice thing to be gifted as a parent, the chance to understand, understand your children. I don't know how, how, I mean, how are you doing it? Um, you've got a couple of months on me. Are you, are you, temp- are you, are you trying to do it in a sort of similar way? Yeah. Or? Yeah. Like you said, trying not to pathologize and like diagnosis spot, because if you look hard enough, you could find it anywhere. I'm convinced yeah. of that. And also like children and their attention is a very different thing to adults. And their attention. Yeah. But like, I will see all the like, holding needing to go to the toilet for too long and I think oh (laughs) I know someone else who does that Um, and like you say it just it it does open up a new door to compassion because for me what I found I would fall into so easily is like you not conforming to what I think a child of your age should do reflects badly on me as a parent therefore I need to try and control you and make you not do those things um and so just kind of stopping and being like hold up like a that's my shit and b like i she can be who she is and i understand that there's all sorts of reasons that like people behave in different ways it it has been really helpful to just kind of for me to steer me back towards empathy and i think for my husband as well who is the most neurotypical person you're ever gonna meet like he is like the prototype that i think they possibly use to make neurotypical people um original original human yeah yeah he is he's the mold and um he i think it's been helpful for him to kind of see that parallel and because the fear is when it's your child if you don't do x y and z if you don't brush your hair every day and you know, learn to dress yourself without me nagging you or whatever, you will grow up to not be a successful human. And so he's able to look at me and be like, oh, well, you turned out okay. So yes, <laughs> maybe I don't have to worry so much. And I, I think having that, um, yeah, having that reality check as well, that I I can certainly um, become very bogged down in things because I can see, well, this this thing happens and then it leads to that thing and that thing and that thing and that thing. And I'm, I've mapped the whole thing out and generally it's quite a persuasive map. I mean, it's, you know, I'm, I'm quite good at that kind of thing, but mm. it is only one of the maps. Um, <laughs> so having um, my husband, who's able to be a lot uh, more chilled out about things is really, really helpful. And, and I was having a, conversation with my children I think it was even this morning about behavior and them saying that I won't say which one of one of them it was but one of them was saying you know I don't want to ever get in trouble at school you know even if I go to a new school I never want to have a detention I never want to get in trouble and and that was the thing they were prioritizing <laughs> and so through the lens of the last couple of years kind of able to talk about of course we want to be respectful and kind to other people and rules can be important but conforming and doing as you're told and behaving well actually does do we want that to be the top priority Mm. guiding us in life I know it's been my top priority for years I mean actually there isn't a lot of room to move in that particularly because things you know you you start to believe that you're going to get in huge trouble for things that are are actually deeply uh, insignificant and unimportant so that I feel is another thing that's a sort of it's it's a gift but 
I always have to be careful not to be projecting my own stuff onto them yeah, and turn them much. into a complete rebellious yeah. child. Yeah. <laughs> my mum says I don't have to listen to you. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. I get, there is part of me though that if I had the choice now and like, my children could be, um, you know, talking back or not talking back, I I want them to talk back a little bit. You know, I think yeah. there's a there's a um, I'll regret that, um, but but <laughs> <laughs> but but I would I would rather that because I know I know what it's like to hold it in. I suppose. Yeah, it's definitely not a problem. Ola has <laughs> she she's got this really inbuilt sense of fairness. And she'll come home and she'll tell me that, like, they were in the park. She goes to a Steiner school, so it's a lot more kind of free and easy than than a mainstream school. And um, they're in the park and she found a scooter in the bushes. And so she told her teacher she did the right thing to do. And her teacher, like, had a little go on it and rode around. So then Ola said, oh, can I have a go? And the teacher said, no, because then all the children will want to go. And Ola came home and she was so mad. She was just like, that's not fair. If she's allowed to go, I'm allowed to go. And I was like... Yeah, I kind of agree with you, really. Yes, yes. And I think that that children do tend to have a, I mean, slightly, you know, over the top, but a real sense of what's fair and things being unfair. And um, I think that's that for me is probably one of the things that ended up getting me into sort of human rights stuff. And, you know, like justice is really important to me. I find it, um, I, I find it hard to, to exist when everything feels unfair mm. not specifically directed at me but the world feels yes. so unequal and I so that's a real that really motivates me and I think in 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 earth that's one of the reasons why there is quite a, a bit of sort of political stuff in there because I you know some of the things that swill around my brain are about you know inequality and 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 uh, I think many people would say, you know, it's a memoir, it's about mental health, it's about nature, you don't need to write about um, racial justice or or about, um, you know, the, you know, it, it, the climate change. It's like, what is more political than the land? Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. Where we are, where we stand, what we have, um, you know, the ability to 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 nourish and sustain our our families and, and the freedom and space. There is nothing more political than that. So, I think it's a sort of, for me, a, that that inbuilt fairness driver is 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 something that I I really appreciate and 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 like, even if it's a bit of a pain in the arse sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I would switch it off <laughs> if I could sometimes, for sure. Yeah. But I, on the whole, I agree with you. <laughs> I wonder then, like, what have you found in in the kind of year? It's, it's been a year now, hasn't it? So the year since your diagnosis, what have you found that helps you, that supports you, that, that maybe you already knew about, but you hadn't quite identified it as a strategy necessarily before? I mean, I think that the physical reality of doing the tasks of the small holding is really important to me. Mm. You know, I I conjured myself here for a reason. So I need to go outside several times a day yes. and I wouldn't necessarily do it yes. if I was still doing work, you know. I, I was reading to. it thinking this, thinking maybe I need like some cows to milk. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes I mean start small I would I would suggest not a whole herd of cows straight away I haven't even got a big garden so. 
very tiny cows. Um, but yeah, it does. It makes me go outside. I have to. Um, and then like the the stuff with growing growing things. You know, it's a lot of repetitive tasks that allows a bit of my brain to be occupied with that and the rest of it to sort of relax mm. um and and I think it also helps with the kind of I was really surprised when I I was diagnosed um I, I had a computerized test as part of my diagnosis which I know not everyone does but I was on the 99th centile for hyperactivity mm. um, as well as inattention and I was really shocked by that I would not have thought of myself as as hyperactive at all I still struggle with the idea of it but I'm you know I'm hugely energetic and I'm always finding things to do and so having things to do is important to me um and and I think finding a way to have those things in my life actually the connection with the animals as well I really thrive on on that Mm. it's really important to me because it's very simple it's a connection yes. that's free from the, you know, from the stuff that a human connection has been full of for my whole life. It's very unconditional, isn't it? Like, you just accept one another as living beings and there's no baggage. Absolutely. And and it, so when when I was busy forgetting to, to call you <laughs> a week ago, my, so I, I this goat was having this really long labor and I knew something was wrong I'd known something was wrong all week um I'd actually got the vet out and and the vet you know couldn't find anything wrong she was just I've been at a lot of births human births Mm. and and actually when she eventually went in into proper labor something was wrong and um uh, we I had to call call the the vet out and I sort of had about 15 minutes where I was alone in the in the kidding pen with her and I'd been with her every night you know spent a lot of time with her but I was just stroking her I was I was very concerned that that one of the kids um was uh you know going to die and in fact in fact one of them did and I I was quite upset and she was Mm. quite upset and we had this kind of 15 minutes in the the shed which was pretty scary and lonely except we were both there together and it was a difficult experience, but it was, there was a, there was a real connection in there. And I was really glad I was there for her. It felt like, a, yeah. you know, I was right. It had been right that I'd been up every night, even though it'd been driving everybody mad and she did need me. And actually I, I'm sure needed that bit of connection that at that time. And so, yeah, there's a, there's a sort of an important, there's some, I just thought, here there's also important lessons for me about things not being black and white not being polarized and being really good or really bad and yeah like everything's just all tangled up together and that's I think how life is, is it's just I I haven't had the capacity to see and understand it that way yeah because that's not a good memory per se of that that you know tragic loss of of one of the the kids but it is still a moment that you took something you really needed from that, yeah. that's living, isn't it? Yeah, and that that you know that she she definitely you know I know it's it sounds a bit stupid, but that that goat needed me there. I, don't I think made it's it better. stupid. I made all. it better. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the vet who turned up and said, "We'll just we're just going to do an epidural," and I thought he was joking. Um, and then <laughs> no, they did. They did. It was amazing. Oh, she got better treatment up. than I did. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it was really, really great. I'm calling a vet next time. <laughs> I, the bit that happened next, I wouldn't entirely recommend for, for humans, but <laughs> definitely the, the epidural. 
<laughs> it's so um, interesting. Uh, so over the summer, last summer, um, we rescued some kittens from a local farm that there was just dead and dying kittens everywhere. We managed to scoop the last few out and save two of the three. And I, I ended up keeping one of them. And that connection has been like the lifeline that has kept me going. I mean, we already have a house full of animals. I was not short on pets, but in the same way, like she needed me as much as I needed her. And I really noticed because because I've been at home with her and she was so tiny, she was taken from, well, her mum had died. So, you know, I was having to syringe her milk. Like we were so bonded and we spend a lot of time together if I'm ever sat down or lying down somewhere she, she'll come and find me and when I'm with her it is like I am with another nervous system and that I think that helps me regulate like another living being another nervous system to kind of bounce off but it comes with none of the expectations of another human and as soon as like my daughter or my husband or anyone else comes in and sits next to me there is a ratcheting up of pressure and it's not necessarily a negative pressure it's just I notice it physically within my body of like okay now like perform a little bit of like yeah. don't break any of the rules and I, I, I only uncovering that really in this last year of having that contrast and being like oh, okay and I took a course with a psychologist like a professor a few weeks ago in um, dialectal behavioral therapy and he was saying one of the one of the absolute like determiners for adult outcomes for a child is that they have someone who offers them unconditional love. And he was like, if you can't find a human, get an animal. They're so much better at doing it. And it just really resonated with me. Yes, I, I think that that's, that's really, really interesting. I hadn't thought about the nervous systems um, and, and how the that sort of calming effect of another neurosystem um she says I'm, I'm saying this while looking on my little goat baby monitor and seeing <laughs> that I, I, I may have about three minutes where oh, I have okay. to go go and go and commune with a a nervous system that's maybe not as calm she as might it need usually one. Is. yeah she might need your calm nervous system. <laughs> but I, what you were saying about the physic the physicality of it is something that I'm just beginning to unpick as well that physical tension how much of like holding that in my in my body and I've sort of been chasing that tension around my body yes. in various ways over the past year simply because of writing a book actually and, and being in quite a lot of pain from being in that position and realizing that I'm I if, if, I, if I sort of get get rid of it in one place it just migrates to yes. another and it's a physical holding on of a, a whole group of muscles um and um and it's just basically meandered all the way around my body into a whole load of unexpected places and 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 trying to realize that's something I've now got to work on how I um stop the clenching the holding on the just try hard enough that's, that I'm holding physically because it's definitely um I'm sure part of the the process of beginning to sort of accept yourself and 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 also just feel feel better but I, I don't I don't have the answer quite yeah <laughs> no I don't know if you've looked at somatic therapy it's a, a branch of psychotherapy that's kind of more new but that I found a lot of help and a lot of answers in that area so it's for anyone listening as well it's an interesting one to google that is specifically recommended as well for people with ADHD a lot of the time that's super helpful and I've just written it down and it will be uh, one of the things I obsessively research. Amazing. You'll be an expert within days. <laughs> I'm going to let you go because I'm, I'm very worried for your goat. But Rebecca, where can people find more and where can they find the book? 
So the book from the 6th of May um, should be available in pretty much all um, independent and big bookshops online um, and in person. And if you um, are able to order it into your library and mention it to your bookshop, that would be great. Um, And um, I am, you know, I'm to be found, I'm pretty easily Googleable. If you put my name (laughs) in, um, you find my website and my Instagram where I'm posting a kind of mixture of pictures of goats and chats about sowing seeds to some slightly thornier stuff about mental health um, and how it all swirls together in the general chaos of existence and hopefully by the time this goes out we'll be able to see some extra baby goats on there fingers crossed fingers i wouldn't crossed. be surprised if uh, but by the time uh, we're having breakfast tomorrow there's some extra, extra baby goats. <laughs> rebecca thank you so much i feel like this has been oh my i could talk to you for days because there's so much in your experience that mirrors mine but also opens up new new little doors in my brain so yes thank you for this Oh, I've really enjoyed it too. I think we're going to have to have some kind of very long lunch yes. at some point. Yes, possibly <laughs> with wine. I am in. Okay, yeah, yeah. go and give that go all of our love and uh, we'll see you online. Thanks so much, Sarah. Thank Take you. care. Bye. Bye. Show notes for this episode are at meandorla.co.uk forward slash podcast 104. And there you'll find links to everything we talked about in today's episode. Hopefully they're also magically appearing within your podcast app. I'll make sure Rebecca's Instagram handle is in there if you want to go and check her out. And if you want to follow me, I'm at me underscore and underscore Orla. And I'd love to hang out with you on there and hear all about your thoughts about this week's episode. I will be back with a new conversation for you next week. I hope you have an awesome time until then. And I'm sending lots of love.